CSN International presents To Every Man an Answer, the live Bible answer program that equips you to give a reason for the hope that lies within you. If you have a question on the Bible or the Christian faith, you can call us at 1 888 827 5276. That's 1 888 Ask CSN. Now let's get things started. Here's today's host. Well, hi and welcome to Monday's edition of To Every Man and Answer as we begin another week answering your questions on the Bible, the Christian faith, and current events. I'm Scott Parker in for Mike Kessler today, and I'm the pastor of Calvary Chapel in Festus, Missouri. That is just south of the great city of St. Louis, and it is my joy to be your host today and answering questions for you here on CSN. And if you have a question today, we want to encourage you to give us a call at 8888-ASK-CSN, 8888-ASK-CSN, and that translates out to 888-827-5276. And for those of you who listen on the weekends to CSN, you can turn in, tune in, I'm sorry, to our radio program that we air, uh, the sermons from our church here on a program called A Word for the Church, and that's heard every Saturday at 10 a.m. and Sunday evenings at 6 p.m., and th- those times are central times right here on CSN, and we'd love to have you tune in. We always love hearing from our CSN listeners. And so again, today, if you have a question on the Bible or the Christian faith, give us a call at 8888-ASK-CSN. That's 888-827-5276, and we hope and pray everyone had a blessed weekend. This weekend, together with the family of God, worshiping our great Lord, and I know at Calvary Chapel Festus, we had a wonderful time of worship, and I had an opportunity to to share an actual special Thanksgiving message to prepare our congregation and our hearts for the Thanksgiving season, and we taught on the origin of Thanksgiving and talked about the first Thanksgiving here in America and how that related back to the Bible and talked about the origin of Thanksgiving actually goes way beyond the first Thanksgiving here in America. It goes all the way back to the Bible in the book of Leviticus and the Feast of Tabernacles, which was uh, was identified by the Jews themselves as the Jewish Thanksgiving. And so it was just a wonderful time. And if anyone is interested in listening to that message, you could go to our YouTube channel. It's Calvary Chapel Festus on YouTube. And uh, the uh, message is there for you to listen to. And so again, um, I'm Scott Parker, pastor of Calvary Chapel here in Festus, Missouri. And if you have a question, we want to encourage you to give us a call today. And that's 8888-ASK-CSN. And so uh, right now, we're going to go ahead and go to the phones. And we have Karen from Longview, Washington on the phone. And so, Karen, welcome to the program today. How can we help you? Hi. Um, I had called in last week, but we ran out of time. So my question Mm -hmm. has to do with whether or not there is a way to tell whether a person has actually made a deal with the devil. I mean, can you ask them um, to say that you accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior? And if they can't do that, then is that going to be your answer? Well, you know, when it comes to this idea of making a pact with the devil, we really don't see any of that in the scriptures. Um, you know, we, we see a lot of it, uh, in Hollywood. We see a lot of that, 
um, among, you know, for instance, you know, rock and roll stars who supposedly made a pact with the devil. And if he would give them fame and fortune, then, uh, then, uh, they would sell their souls over to him and, and things like that. Uh, but as far as the Bible's concerned, the, the Bible really doesn't say anything about that. Um, but it is interesting because Jesus did talk about in John chapter eight, he did talk about those who reject him and don't believe in him being the children of the devil. And so, you know, when it comes to, when it comes to this issue, what we have to understand is in, for instance, in Ephesians chapter two, it speaks of all of us before we're believers being sons of disobedience and basically children of, of the devil. Uh, until we are born again, uh, we are under the influence and we're under, uh, the, the power of, of the devil, uh, through temptation and through deception. And it's not until we hear the gospel, we believe in the truth, uh, that we are then set free, uh, from Satan's power over us. And so, you know, again, this whole thing of, of making a pact with the devil, it's, it's actually not something, uh, you know, that you see in scripture. Um, you know, the, the, the one thing I could think of that might be close would be maybe Judas. Um, but Judas just simply out of his greed, um, you know, he was willing to betray the Lord Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. Um, but Jesus did identify Judas as one having the devil or having, uh, a, a demon spirit in him. He, he told his disciples, um, as they were gathered together that, that one of you is a devil. That doesn't mean that he was the devil, but he was in league and in pact with the devil in the, in that he had plans to betray the Lord Jesus Christ. So I think in, at least in the New Testament and in the Bible, that's probably the closest you could come to something like that. But Karen, does that help at all? It does, but I, I do know the Bible talks about people having a demon or demons inside them. Is there a way that you can tell whether somebody does? Oh, my goodness. Yeah, I think what what you see in Scripture is when someone is demon-possessed, um, these are these are people where demons will manifest through them in in that they will control their their physical attributes, their faculties physically. Um, you know, when you, when you see this in scripture, uh, most of the time when someone is demon possessed, uh, they, they actually physically show these, uh, signs or if you want to say symptoms. Um, and you have, uh, you have a lot of those examples of this in scripture. The man at Gadarenes who was, who had extra human strength and was able to break chains and then cut himself with stones and, and this sort of thing. Um, you know, now in the, in the gospels, we do see, um, that some of the people that Jesus healed, um, such as, uh, people who were, who were deaf and blind and mute, uh, and it speaks of some of those, uh, having a demon spirit in them. So sometimes now we, we never want to say at all that if somebody has a physical illness, uh, or if they're blind or, or deaf or mute that it, they have a demon or that it's an unclean spirit doing it. Um, but sometimes that could be the case. And it, and it certainly was in the gospels. Um, but most of the time when somebody is, is, is demon possessed, they're, they are going to show some sort of physical manifestation of that that is, that is not normal. And on top of that, 
Um, usually those things are manifested whenever the name of Jesus is brought up. Whenever someone who is demon possessed and you start interacting with that person and start to, uh, you know, uh, share the gospel with them or you, uh, you know, have them to uh, say the name of Jesus and things like that, then this sort of thing can manifest. And um, it's very interesting because when you look in the Gospels, especially, like I said, with the man of Gadarenes there, um, what you see is when Jesus went to speak with this man, the demons inside him, you know, spoke through him to Jesus saying they knew exactly who Jesus was. And so someone who is demon possessed it has a spirit in them who knows Jesus Christ very well. And those demons also know that they have no legal right to that person and they have no power uh, as far as um, being able to hold that person uh, like that because they know that that Jesus has all authority. And so that's why when Jesus would uh, interact with people who were demon-possessed, uh, sometimes you see the demons you know, speaking through the person to Jesus, uh, actually asking Jesus not to torment them before the time and send them to the abyss and this sort of thing. Um, so that would be biblically, that would be probably the, the, the thing that I would look at and point to the most. So Karen, does that help? It does. Thank you. You got it. And, and Karen, I will say that today in the church today, there's a lot of fascination. Uh, with demon possession and demon oppression. Um, there are some preachers and teachers today who are claiming that people are either demon possessed, uh, or they're oppressed when really it's the issue of the person, uh, is not demons. Um, and it's not a disease, but it's the works of the flesh. Uh, in Galatians chapter five, Paul mentions a lot of sinful behaviors. That I know many, many pastors and churches would say, um, these people have demons in them that's causing them to do these things. Um, but Paul would differ because in, in, in Galatians five, you read that list of behaviors. Paul says that these aren't demons at all. They're actually works of the flesh. And so there's a lot of people who, who will, for instance, say, you know, a person, uh, who is, who is, uh, a drunkard and who is bound to, to alcohol. They'll say he has a demon or a spirit of alcoholism. And, so, and there's no such thing. There's no such thing as the spirit of alcoholism. Um, it's, it's, it, Paul would tell us that those who are drunkards and those that, who are bound by alcohol, those are works of the flesh. Those are, those are behaviors and things, sins that the fallen, desire of man in, in his fallen sinful state um, and his his fallen nature uh, craves and desires. And so, you know, what what are sinful desires in the Bible? Many times you will have some pastors and churches actually tell people that they're demons when they're not. And then you'll also have other people to tell them, no, those aren't, you know, those those aren't sins. They're actually diseases. Um, but really the truth is not so much that they're diseases or they're demons, but what they are is they're actually just desires of the fallen nature that people, uh, choose, uh, to, to exercise. And, um, when, when a person, um, is simply acting in their flesh in that way and fulfilling the desires of their flesh, 
it's really a futile thing to pray over them and try to cast a demon out of them. And so there's a lot today uh, that is being touted and and claimed as demon possession uh, when it's really not. And so we have to be careful. And I think the best thing for us to do to be able to discern that is to go back to the to the Bible, especially the Gospels and the book of Acts, uh, where we see this played out the most and uh, and try to, um, you know, if you want to use the word diagnose or uh, try to remedy remedy it. Uh, the way Jesus and the apostles did. So, Karen, thanks so much again for the call. And if you would stay on the line and the folks at CSN have some things they would love to send out to you for calling in today. And let's go ahead now and go to Idaho. And we have Aaron on the line. Aaron, welcome to Every Man and Answer. Hey, God bless you, brothers. Uh, I, mm-hmm. I called in last last Monday and I wasn't able to get through, but um, okay. I appreciate you guys taking my call. Um so I'm, I've been ministering to, to someone that um, um, is trying to get back into the faith. He he kind of strayed away and fell into the sin of adultery. And um, mm-hmm. and I guess my first question would be: Is um, is adultery forgivable if it's done intentionally? Well, yes, yes. In fact, all sins are forgivable. Uh, except for one. And Jesus made it very clear that the only sin that is not forgivable is whenever we, we reject the testimony of Jesus Christ being given to us by the Holy Spirit. That's called blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Uh, Jesus said that if a person, uh, would sin against the Son of Man and then not believe, or, or sin against the Son of Man, even those sins could be forgiven. But he who sins against the Holy Spirit, a person can never be forgiven for that. And the reason for that is because the Holy Spirit came after Jesus died. He resurrected and ascended into heaven. God then sent the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit's job in our life is to convict us of sin, which means to convince us uh, that we are sinners and to show us when we actually do sin against God. And the purpose of the conviction work of the Holy Spirit is to bring us to a place of repentance and confession of our sin if we're believers. If we're not believers, then the purpose of the conviction of the Spirit is to lead us to faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, but as Christians, the Holy Spirit convicts us when we sin uh, because we belong to the Lord and we have the Holy Spirit in us. And the Holy Spirit convicts us to bring us to a place of repentance and confession. So, yeah, so adultery, if a person commits adultery, the, the adultery is is very forgivable, of course, because all sins are. Jesus died on the cross, and when he died on the cross, he said, it is finished. And the words there, it is finished, in the Greek, literally mean paid in full. In other words, Jesus paid the sin debt that we owed to God, which was our very life and our very eternities, um, you know, he he paid the price for our sins against God, which would cost us um, life and would cause death instead of life. And so uh, what I'm saying is um, if we don't repent of our sins and put faith in Christ, then we're going to be we're, we're not only going to experience all of us. Number one, we're going to experience uh, we're going to experience physical death. Then we're going to experience if we don't have a relationship with God, we experience spiritual death. Until we receive Christ, but if we reject Christ and continue in our sin, then we expect, we experience eternal death, which is eternal separation from God. So that's why I'm saying that. 
but when Jesus died on the cross, he said, it is finished. In other words, uh, the, the work of redemption was complete. Jesus, through his atonement and through his death on the cross, provided the atonement, the covering, and paid the price for our sins so that God could forgive us for all of our sins. Now, let me say this. When it comes to adultery and any sin, if we continue in those sins, then no, we will not be forgiven. Uh, for instance, you can read uh, in First uh, Corinthians chapter 6, beginning in verse 9 and on. You also can read in Galatians chapter 5 as another place where Paul lists different sins and different works of the flesh. And he says that those who practice these things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And when Paul says, uses that word practice, what he's speaking of is regular habitual lifestyle. He's, he's talking about how a certain sin actually, uh, identifies who we are because we, we continue in that sin. It, it, it becomes so part of our character, uh, that as we continue in it, it actually defines who we are. You know, for instance, you know, just, just using for example, uh, if a person continues to abuse alcohol, and they become what the Bible calls a drunkard, and they're bound by alcohol, and they continue to do that. Um, you know, what do you call that person? Uh, there's many people that they are identified by that sin. You know, you know, old Joe, the drunk, you know, um, and that's what it means to practice sin, to continue in it. So you you cannot continue in adultery or any other sin. And expect that you're going to have eternal life. Expect that you're going to you're going to go into the kingdom of God. Paul says no. That what we have to do is we have to repent of our sins and confess them to the Lord. And 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 repentance means to turn from them. And to, and and repentance. What repentance is in the New Testament? The Greek word for repentance uh, is not a. It's not just a mere feeling or an emotion or simply being sorry for what I've done. But what repentance is is a. It's a mental. And a very intelligent decision that we make to stop one behavior, to stop a behavior, to turn from it, and then to live a lifestyle in obedience to God. So in the New Testament, the word for repentance, what it literally means is it means to turn from sin and to have a, have a change of mind. Okay. That's what the word means to change your mind, to have a change of mind that leads to a radical, um, change in behavior. If a person says they're sorry for their sins, but they don't stop doing their sins, then they're not repentant. They're just sorry. And Paul told the Corinthians that 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 kind of sorrow where we're just sorry or we have regret for what we've done, that that kind of sorrow is worldly sorrow and there's no life in it. But godly sorrow is where our heart is broken because we've sinned against God and that we're willing to not only confess, but we're willing to repent, change our mind about that sin and to turn from it and to live a different way. Okay. So it's very important to understand all sins are forgivable, you know, except again for rejecting the testimony of the Holy Spirit about Christ. That's the only one that's not forgivable. Every other sin is forgivable. But for us to be forgiven for any and all of our sins as Christians, we have to be willing, as the Bible says, to confess our sin. First John 1, 9, uh, John tells us very clearly that if we confess our sins, and to confess sin, uh, Aaron, literally means 
to say the same thing as God. The word confess there means to be in agreement with. It, it comes from two Greek words. It literally means to speak the same thing. And what are we speaking? When we confess our sins to God, we are telling God that we agree with what he says about our sin. And when true confession is not just going to God and saying, God, I did this and uh, please forgive me. But that's not confession. Confession is coming to the Lord and saying, Lord, here's what I've done. And I know it's wrong. I know it's against your word. It's against your character and your nature. And I agree with you about what your word says about this sin. I agree with you, with you about what your spirit is convicting me of about this sin. And I'm willing to turn from it and I ask you to forgive me. And so uh, when a person does that, even if they commit adultery, they can be forgiven. Now, when it comes to adultery, um, you know, that can be a deep well of situations, <laughs> okay, uh, of, of issues in there. Um, you know, if a person commits adultery, um, you know, God will forgive them. Uh, David committed adultery. And in Psalm 51, you know, he went to God and told God against you and you only have I sinned. And he asked for forgiveness. Um, but he didn't just commit sin against against God. He also committed sin against Bathsheba and, and against Uriah, her husband. And uh, but what David was dealing with there was his heart before God saying, you know, uh, against you and you only in the sense that, number one, I have to deal with you about my sins first. But that doesn't mean that if you commit adultery, that the person you committed adultery against is going to forgive you. Um, but what a person needs to do if they've committed adultery after God has forgiven them, they really do need to go to that person that they sinned against and try their best, uh, to, to make confession there and to at least, um, uh, what's the word I want to use here to, to make some sort of a, a restitution or a restoration of the relationship in some way that they can. So Aaron, I know that was a lot, but I hope that helps. Did that help you any? Yes. Yes, brother. So, and, and kind of going off what you said, um, I believe that there does need to be a restoration, you know, a reconciliation um, because in the, in the Bible, I know it talks about, especially if someone is married in the eyes of God, right? I know, I know when we're in the world, right, we kind of do things we don't really know what we're doing, right? We, we're kind of blind to what the things of the Word of God says. But mm -hmm. I know that they were, they were married through the church. And so mm -hmm. I, I believe, you know, that because, you know, they were married in front of the, in the eyes of God, you know, it says that whatever's bound in, on earth is bound in heaven, right? Um, and so I, I believe that there would have to be a restoration in their relationship and also um would that person have to be if like say if let's say if it doesn't happen would that person have to be alone like they, they couldn't they couldn't be married to another person right because in the eyes of god they're still married yeah now here's yeah so let me ask you this uh aaron the the person who is struggling with this and did this is is there are they are they going to uh pursue divorce or have they pursued divorce so I know, um, I know that they, yeah, they, the, the person, but so the guy that committed adultery against his wife, um, she doesn't want anything to do with him anymore. Right. Which I know that's another okay. issue because lack of forgiveness. Right. But, um, yeah. but which is understandable. I, I mean, I understand a spouse 
reacting that way and responding that way when their spouse has committed adultery against them. I mean, you know, that's that's justifiable in the sense of the emotions and feelings a person would have like that. But when it comes down to it, what God would rather see, just because someone commits adultery against someone doesn't mean even though Jesus and and Paul, especially Jesus, gives a um, an allowance for divorce in that case. It's not a commandment. It's not, hey, if if someone if you've committed adultery that you have to get a divorce. God would always always want restoration rather than divorce because God hates divorce. But divorce happens, Jesus said in Matthew nineteen, because of the hardness of men's hearts, and and adultery will cause that. Adultery will cause the the spouse who's been sinned against to have a hard heart to where the marriage is not reparable. Uh, it can't be repaired. And then the spouse who's been sinned against has a right to divorce, even if they're Christians, you know. Now, as far as far as the question, um, you know, about if the person who committed adultery uh, could ever be married again, you, you would have differing opinions, okay, um, from different pastors about that. Uh, some some pastors would interpret Jesus' words um, of of being married, okay. Um, and then if you divorce your spouse, some would say that Jesus is making it clear uh, that 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 person can never marry again because they're actually in the eyes of God married to that first person. Um, and that if they do get married again, they're committing adultery again. Um, and then I've heard other pastors who would take those same words and interpret it as, yes, they would commit adultery um, when the divorce happens and when they would marry someone else, but they wouldn't then necessarily uh, continue their life in a state of of divorce. But I think, you know, the best thing to do is to take Jesus' words for what he said and, you know, to realize that if we're married, the reason adultery is such a big issue is because we have made vows to our spouse before Almighty God that we are going to stay with this person forever. And so I think that's why it's important for us Christians to really, really be careful how we live and to guard our own hearts and to guard our marriages. Uh, because as you said, Aaron, uh, Jesus in Matthew 19, quoting uh, all the way back from the book of Genesis said, God made them male and female. He brought them together as one. And God's intention in marriage is always one man for one woman for life. And we know there are situations, again, like adultery and desertion of a spouse where, um, you know, there's exceptions to that. Uh, but I think we need to take more serious in the church our vows to God. So, Aaron, I hope that helps. We're coming up on a break. We'll be right back with the second half of Every Man and Answer in just a moment. If you are 65 or older, you know this. Watching your hard-earned dollars fly out the window on health care costs is frustrating. Well, here's something that can really help, and it's worth taking a minute to look into. MediShare 65 Plus. MediShare is a community of Christians who share each other's health care bills 
And it really is a community too. People encourage and pray for each other. Well, MediShare 65 Plus is a low-cost option for those with Medicare Parts A and B, and it fills in the gaps where Medicare stops. It's a great way to fight inflation too. You can lock in one low monthly price for up to 10 years. And it's easy. You can use any Medicare-approved doctor or get 24-7 telehealth access from the comfort of your home. Very worth looking into during Medicare open enrollment, which ends December 7th. If you join right now, your second month share will be free. So don't miss this chance. Call 833-90-SHARE. That's 833-90-SHARE. 833-90-SHARE. In 2007, when Dan Steiner, president of Preborn, cried out to God, what can I do for you? The answer came loud and clear. I sense God's broken heart over the issue of abortion. You see, he sees every little baby that's being formed in the mother's womb, and it breaks his heart to see when the lifetime that he has planned for them is taken from them violently so often. But if we can get a mom into one of our clinics and show her her baby, and she has that uh, close encounter of the best kind in her womb, she will choose life. Preborn Network of Clinics have rescued over 200,000 babies from abortion. To learn more about the life-saving work of Preborn, call 855-668-BABY. That's 855-668-BABY. Or visit preborn.com. That's preborn.com. All gifts are tax-deductible. Your love can save a life. Welcome back to Monday's edition of To Every Man and Answer here on CSN International. I'm Scott Parker. I am the pastor of Calvary Chapel in Festus, Missouri, near the city of St. Louis. And it's my joy to be your host today here on the program. And we're going to go back to the phones. And uh, if you have a question right now, the the uh, phones are all filled up. But if you do have a question, 8888-ASK-CSN is the number to call. And let's go ahead and go back to the phones. We have Jeff on the line. Jeff, welcome to the program today. Hello. I tried to get on Thursday, but and this question would have went well with Thursday's episode. But uh, mm-hmm. I got a statement and a question. Uh, okay. How not to be a target? Because illegal enemies have crossed and come into our country. We need to be mm-hmm. diligent. I've heard they've set up cells in major cities. I've served five years in the Marine Corps and do not want you to be a target. One, right. do not travel the same path to and from your destination. Two, always lock your vehicle. Three, at night, park in a lit area, and if you can, in a camera site. Four, walk around your vehicle before getting in and inspect it. If you see something like your hood popped, call the police and have it checked out. Five, as you're inspecting your vehicle, look inside and make sure nobody has gotten inside. Six, try not to be alone or be in a crowd. Seven, be sure somebody you trust knows where you are. And eight, have a supply of food and water that will last you for a significant amount of time. And I know that uh, terror cells has been set up in major cities waiting for a proper time to attack. Okay, well, Jeff, that's that's great advice. And thank you for what you have learned, obviously, uh, from being a Marine and, and all of that. Thank you, number one, for your service, uh, you know, yesterday or Saturday being Veterans Day. Thank you and all of those who are listening to us right now, 
uh, who have served uh, our country in the military. We appreciate and really thank you for your service and your sacrifice and dedication uh, to help keep us all free. And so, Jeff, um, you know, we t- we do know that is true. We do know that through our southern borders, there has been a lot of people from uh, not just uh, South America, but from the Middle East, and that, uh, you know, we, we have a lot of these type of terrorists in our country. We've already saw that back on 9-11, back in 2001. And um, so, Jeff, thank you so much for your advice there. And uh, did you have a question? Yeah, just said to buy a sword, and I think uh, mm-hmm. if you can, you need to buy one. What do you think of that? Well, Jeff, you know what I, th- I think about that actually is I, I think what Jesus is referring to there uh, is self-defense um, in the scriptures. Um, the scriptures make it clear that um, we are allowed to defend ourselves against evil. Uh, we do know that when it comes to um, you know, our government and the police and law enforcement and such, you know, you being a Marine, the, the military, uh, that God has raised up government entities like that, uh, in order to be, um, uh, a protector of its people and they don't wield the sword in vain, as it says. Um, so definitely believe in that. Uh, but the whole thing about buying a sword, you know, Jesus uh, told his disciples that they were going to face persecution. Things were going to get very dangerous for them as they go out into the world. And we're talking about 2000 years ago where they were traveling in places, um, you know, where there were lots of bandits, lots of robbers and things like that. Very dangerous times. And uh, I believe Jesus was telling his disciples to grab a sword for the for the sake of self defense, not to take up arms to attack anyone, uh, but to uh, to be able to defend himself during a difficult time like that. So I believe that's what Jesus was speaking of. So Jeff, thanks for the call, thanks for the advice, and if you would hang on the line, we have some things we like to send out to you. And let's go ahead now and go to Gary. Gary's in Fort Worth, Texas. Gary, welcome to the program. Yeah, hello there. Yeah, hello. Hello. Can you hear me okay? Yes. Yes, you're on the program. How can we help you? Sir, uh, my question is about how close do you think we are to the Antichrist coming on the scene? Okay, do we – Gary, can – can are, are you asking if, if, uh, if the Antichrist may be alive today? Is that what you're asking? Yeah, we could go that route on that question, I believe. Uh, I'm just okay. curious uh, how close you think we are him coming on the scene and taking power. Okay, well, so that's a great question, a very interesting question. Um, number one, let's answer this question. Could it be possible that the Antichrist is alive today? I would definitely say yes, it's very possible. Um, as we look at the signs of the times, we look at our world, we see where every, how everything's going, it appears that what we're seeing in our world on, on every front and every side, um, I believe what we're seeing is the setup um, for the things that are going to happen during the tribulation period. Okay, Now, of course, the tribulation period comes after the rapture. Okay, um, I, I believe the Bible teaches a pre-tribulational rapture, which means Jesus is going to come in the clouds of the air, and he is going to raise the dead believers, and then those believers who 
are alive on the earth at the time Jesus raises the dead believers will be caught up with them. That's where we get the word rapture uh, in the Greek harpazo. We find this in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. I'm sorry, not 1 Corinthians, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 and on. And so that's going to happen. Jesus is going to remove his church from the earth. And we also read about that um, in type um, and in prophecy in Revelation chapter 4, where John, after the church age, we see that John then is caught up into heaven. And all of a sudden, he's in the presence of God along with the redeemed people of God. And so that is all what has that has to transpire before the tribulation period. Now, when the tribulation begins, if you move forward in the book of Revelation to chapter six, when Jesus opens the first seal judgment, those seal judgments are the first set of three sets of judgments. Each there's seven judgments in each set. The seal judgments are the first of those three sets of judgments that are going to occur during the tribulation period. It looks as if the seal judgments and the trumpet judgments happened in the first half of the tribulation toward and, and toward the middle, and then the the bowl judgments happened in the second half of the tribulation. What's interesting, when Jesus opens that first seal, Revelation chapter 6 in verse two, 1 and 2, what you see is you see a man on a white horse coming forward, and as he does, what he's doing is he he's on a white horse he has a bow and he has no arrow, means he, he comes in peace, but it also says that he comes conquering and to conquer. And so that is the Antichrist. That is not Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ comes at the end of the tribulation period in Revelation 19 on a white horse and comes and defeats the Antichrist. So the Antichrist will come into the world. When he comes, he will come as a man of peace. According to Daniel 9, 27, he's going to make... He's going to make a covenant or a peace treaty with the nation of Israel and with those around her, and that will probably include the rebuilding of the Jewish temple. And so what we see then is he brings a – he's a false Christ who brings a false peace, but then during the middle of the tribulation period, according to Daniel chapter 9, according to Jesus and Matthew chapter 24, at the halfway point of the tribulation period, he's going to break his covenant with Israel He's going to demand the sacrifices in the temple and all the Jewish worship of, of Yahweh to stop. And then he's going to persecute the Jewish people and set himself up as God. You can read about that in Second Thessalonians chapter 2. He sets an image of himself up and sets himself up as God to be worshipped by the Jews and the rest of the world. And then we read in Revelation 13, all of those people... Um, then who refused to worship the image of his name and to take the mark that he's going to give for people to be able to buy and sell, that what's going to happen then is he's going to have those people killed. And so that's what the Antichrist is going to do. But when you read Second Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul tells us, though, that that day, the day of the Lord, the tribulation is not going to come until after there's a falling away, there's an apostasy. And then the son of the son of perdition, the son of destruction, the man of sin, which is the Antichrist, then he will be revealed. Okay, and that's going to happen during the tribulation period. So, Gary, here's here's I said all that to say this. There's a lot that has to happen, but there's a lot happening now. Uh, when, when we look at when we look at things like globalism, 
when we look at the push for a one world order and a global government, we see the push for a one world currency because what the Antichrist is going to usher in to the whole world is going to be a one world government, a one world economy, and a one world religion. And we're seeing all those things through technology and through globalism. We're starting to see those things come together now to where it is possible for it to happen. So I'm, I'm saying this, Gary, that if we see those signs that Jesus gave in Matthew 24 about what's going to happen in the tribulation, if we're seeing things now that will be able to set that up during the tribulation, and we're seeing everything being set up for the Antichrist to be able to do what he's going to do, that tells us the tribulation can't be that far. Now we, we can't, we can't set dates. We can't even say how many years it's going to be. But the more we see a global government, a push for global, global government, uh, nations giving up their sovereignty over to the UN or, or something like that. And then a one world economy where we're all under the digital currency and all that sort of thing. Um, when we start seeing that, then we know things are being set up for the Antichrist. And the tribulation cannot be that far off. And here's the thing, Gary. If the tribulation is not that far off, that means the rapture is even closer because the rapture happens first. And so could the Antichrist be alive today? Yes, he very well could be. But he will not be revealed to the world until, again, Revelation chapter 6. He'll come as a false Christ with false peace. Okay, and then he'll reveal his true colors halfway through the tribulation period. Um, but Paul says that that man of sin won't be revealed until that time. Okay, and this is all after the rapture happens. So, Gary, does that help? Oh, yes. Uh, you answered a lot of questions uh, that I was <laughs> thinking about. And I, I know, you know, what I say from here is come quickly, Lord Jesus. Come quickly. Amen. I agree with you, Gary. Go. Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> I'm ready. I'm ready to go to uh, be with the Lord. Let me tell you. I mean, I'm not a I'm not a miserable person or anything, but there's so much <laughs> better things happening and and waiting for us uh, when Jesus comes to to get us and to take us home. That's right, Gary. Amen. And and I think that's why John, you know, at the end of the Book of Revelation, is like, Lord Jesus, come quickly, because he saw all that was going to happen in the world. And so, you know, Gary, that's why we need to be sharing the gospel with all we can while we can, because I believe the time is short. And uh, praise God that that you know that your relationship with God is right and that you're ready to go. And we want to tell all of our listeners to please do the same. Make sure that your heart is right before the Lord. And if you're not saved today, give your life to Jesus Christ. So, Gary, thank you so much for the call. If you would, stay on the phone. We'll send you some goodies out by way of mail. And let's go ahead and go to Jeffrey in Texas, Mineral Wells, Texas, that is. So, Jeffrey, welcome to the program. Well, thank you. And uh, potato, I would say, if, if Pastor Mike was there. I'm not, not sure if you know what that means, but uh, that's his uh, hello word instead of aloha. So anyway, that's that's, that's my potato <laughs> to it. So, uh, anyway, the uh, the uh, the question I want to talk to you about, or what I would want to get your opinion about, how you feel, it's something I know that you have seen just countless times. But 
and in our family uh, and friends, some of our uh, friends in our circle of friends, uh, we we see blinders that are just completely uh, blinded to the gospel, no matter what you say. What kind of brought this up was we we take our grandchildren to church every Sunday, three of them, and Mm -hmm. and, uh, one of them uh, in her Sunday school class, about five kids got saved just on one on one Sunday. So. Okay. I don't see, the, see any difference. But, in, and I'm, I'm very cautious about, you know, children, we, when we're talking to children, you know, too young about, uh, you know, getting baptized, you know, or these, mm-hmm. these sorts of things. Uh, but we went to, we were talking to her mother, which is my daughter-in-law, and she's mm-hmm. 33 years old. And, and she said, you know, what happened to me. I was, uh, you know, 10 years old and got baptized, and I really had no clue what it was about. And, yeah. and for myself, I got baptized when I was seven. Then it was like hell until I was in my forties, and mm-hmm. uh, then met the Lord. And, and you know, but what 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 do you think is these blinders on folks? And I mean, I've got a I have a son that just he'd rather do anything except church. And I have a daughter that's that way, and um, and then I have another uh, a stepdaughter who they would much rather be at the ball fields on Sunday than at church. You know, and uh, in yeah. this time when it's just we're we're Facing, we see so much of what's going on, and you and I, and, uh, and I'm sure so many listening, can look at the news and discern the true happenings of what's going on and, and how close the day is. And uh, just so amazing to me that others cannot see it. You talk to them. What are your thoughts about that? Well, so Jeffrey, here's the first thing I would say. Um, you know what you brought up about children being baptized at a really young age. Um, that is one reason why, um, I am not a big fan of baptizing children. Okay. Um, the Bible is very clear that the candidate for baptism is the person who has repented of their sins and put their faith in Jesus Christ. The Bible is very clear in the New Testament about that. And so for that to happen, a person has to, has to be mature enough. Mentally, spiritually, uh, to be able to know that they've sinned against God and why that's a problem and that's an issue in order for them to, to be able to repent and to put faith in Christ. Um, so what's interesting is this. I believe, Jeffrey, that there's a lot of people, um, that have a false hope and that they have a false hope because, you know, maybe when they were small, um, they confessed Jesus as Lord, prayed a prayer, and then got baptized. And they think because they did that, that they're fine with God and that they're okay. Um, but, you know, John the Baptist, when he spoke about repentance, he said uh, when he was baptizing people, he said, um, that of course he preached a baptism of repentance. Um, but what's interesting, he said something that very important when he baptized people, he said this, he said, after you're baptized, bring forth fruits worthy of repentance. In other words, after you're baptized, there should be a changed life. And that is, that's true. That is so very true. And so the, the, the whole idea of letting children be baptized. Um, when they don't fully understand it, I believe only gives them a false hope. Then you have the whole issue of false conversions. 
you have the whole issue of people who may be children, maybe teenagers or even adults um, who because they prayed a prayer, you know, or did something religious uh, like getting baptized, they think they're saved. But but again, when it comes to knowing you're saved, the Bible teaches it very clearly. John the Baptist, Jesus, Paul, the rest of the apostles, read the book of Acts. Uh, Paul said that what he told the Gentiles was repentance of sin and faith toward Christ. So when when it comes to putting our faith toward Christ, there has to be, after that, a lifestyle of repentance, which means turning away from sin and following Jesus Christ as Lord. And that has to happen. So I do believe there are a lot of people with false hope because, again, either they were a child or because they did something religious like that, that they think that they're okay with God. Um, and there's a lot of people who have that testimony. They got baptized when they were a kid and then, you know, lived so much of their life, if not the rest of their life or a lot of their life, living in sin, in very clear sin, rebellion against God. And then um, either stay that way or, or you know, uh, repent and rededicate their life and realize that they were wrong, you know, in, in, in living that way. Um, now, that's not to say that I won't baptize any children. I, I will baptize children. And here's the only children I will baptize. I will only baptize children in my church, the church I pastor. I shouldn't say my church is Jesus church, but in the church I pastor, I will only baptize children. When I know that their parents are Christians and that their parents understand themselves very clearly the gospel and the need for repentance and faith toward Christ. And when the parents can tell me that they are 100% convinced that they know their children understands the gospel and repentance and understands what baptism really is, that only then and only then. Will I then baptize a child? Um, because I I will not just do it at at the word of at, at the word of a child. I want to make sure that we're not giving that child false hope and making you know leading to them to think that they're okay with God when they don't understand it. I think it's a, a terrible injustice that a lot of pastors and churches do. So that that's my take on that. Now I would say this, Jeffrey, when it comes to um, you know uh, our grown adult children. Uh, not wanting anything to do with the church or, you know, putting the church on a back burner and putting other things before the Lord. Um, you know, I, I think it just comes down to this. Um, if, if your children were raised in church, um, sometimes that has an opposite effect on them. And I'll tell you why it has an opposite effect. It has an opposite effect because if people continue to hear the truth, and they don't act upon it, they don't obey it, they don't receive it and do it, what actually happens over time, their hearts can, can become hard. Now, there can be a lot of reasons, Jeffrey. There can be a lot of reasons why um, you know, uh, our adult children may not want anything to do with church. Maybe maybe they saw a, a bad example uh, in somebody at church, you know, weren't, weren't a good example of a Christian, and so they use the whole hypocrite line. There's too many hypocrites in the church. There could be a lot of reasons why. Uh, adult children don't want to go to church. Uh, but you know, one of the, one of the reasons I know is if we continue to hear the truth, but we don't respond to it, our hearts become hard toward it. And then, you know, when they can make their own decisions, they just go their own way. So Jeffrey, does that help at all? 
Absolutely, and I, you know, the uh, I think one of the greatest heresies of our time is is the sinner's prayer. I I see so many pastors uh, that uh, or they'll or evangelists or whatever they they uh, say, okay, say this prayer, and then the prayer said, and then and then uh, the words after that are, okay, you're welcome to the family to God, you're good, you're saved, but that's all. There's no discipleship. There's nothing after that. It's it's go your merry way and wish you well, and I. I just and there's nothing biblical about the the sinner's prayer. It's nowhere to be found. And, uh, just that's another thing that I see that really is is painful to watch, uh, you know, uh, in our society. But anyway, I appreciate yeah. your uh, your thoughts very mm-hmm. much. Thank you. Okay, Jeffrey. Well, thanks for the call. And you know, as far as the sinner's prayer, I've led many people to Christ through the sinner's prayer. But I do think too, so many times we don't make it clear to people that whenever they give their life to Christ, they're giving their life away, that they're making Jesus not only their Savior, but they're making him their Lord, and that what he's going to ask of them is for them to deny themselves, take up the cross, and follow him all the rest of their life. And I don't think there's anything wrong with the sinner's prayer in leading people in a prayer to receive Jesus Christ. I just think the person who's doing that needs to make sure that the people that they're having repeat the prayer or they're leading in that prayer really understand what they're doing. And so let's go ahead now and go to uh, Dina on uh, in Washington. And so, Dina, welcome to the program. Hi, thank you. Um, my question, I've heard um, pastors speak on um, why you should not go to a gay marriage, and I fully agree with mm-hmm. that. Okay. Um, but my question is, if there are a, husband, or a male and female who are just against God, but they're getting married, should I go to that wedding? Yeah, I don't think there's anything wrong with going to that wedding at all. I, I, I you know, if if a person is is um, let me let me say, if it's male and female, and they're not saved, but you're their friend, at least what they are doing. Um, even if they don't fully understand it, which, you know, being a Christian, this would be your opportunity, uh, to, if, if your friends are, are, are not saved and are getting married, this would be a great, uh, door to be able to walk through, to be able to, an opportunity to say to them, uh, what marriage is all about and to be able to share from the Bible what marriage is about. Um, but when a, when, a you know, a, a, a man and a woman, are coming together in, in holy matrimony, um, even if they're unsaved and even if they don't really understand uh, all of the biblical aspect of that, at least they're still doing what is biblical. And that I would encourage and that I would show support uh, because, you know, here's the thing, going to, going to a wedding, what you're doing is going to the wedding is you're, you're showing your support of that marriage. Now, if there were something between that man and woman, if there were a reason, Dina, that you felt biblically that they should not be married, then I couldn't attend that wedding. So really, that's what it comes down to. Should I attend the wedding? It uh, should come down to whether or not uh, it, it, it has biblical parameters to it and biblical reasons to go. So, Dina, we're out of time. I hope that helps. Uh, if you want more on that, you might be able to call back tomorrow and join us. So thanks so much for joining us today for Tavern Man and Answer. And I will be back with you tomorrow with Pastor Mike here on Tuesday. God bless you and have a blessed evening. 
To find out more about this ministry or to receive a copy of today's program, please call 1-800-357-4226 or write us to Every Man and Answer, P.O. Box 391, Twin Falls, Idaho, 83303. That toll-free number is 1-800-357-4226. Subscribe to the free podcast on iTunes by searching for To Every Man and Answer in the iTunes store or visit us online at csnradio.com slash T-E-M-A. To Every Man and Answer is a production of CSN International, the Christian Satellite Network. The opinions expressed by our guests may or may not be those of CSN International or of this station. 